This is Cave Scott Allen of Otoho.com. This is Kevin Dente. This is John Galloway. This is Scott Kuhn from LazyCoder.com. Hello and welcome to Herding Code. It is June 7, 2019. Today we are talking to Will Green about serverless and magical things that they are doing at FireEye. So what do you got? What are you building at FireEye? Uh, so my team is building the FireEye market. Actually, we launched it uh, last October at our our company's annual conference, Cyber Defense Summit in Washington D.C. So what it is, it's a a marketplace for all of the apps and plugins uh, and things that allow you to connect different services that. Um, you might have and bring them into FireEye because we recognize that we're not the only security vendor that's in your network. And it's kind of unrealistic to think that we ever will be the only one. Uh, So what we do is we enable you to connect these things up and we offer them through the market. Okay. So FireEye focuses on kind of like information or on security, uh, internet security kind of stuff. Yeah, FireEye initially started out as as a company that built a very good um, malware detection engine uh, called MVX, and we sold appliances by you know by the truckload for a while, and that was pretty much all they did. In the information security world, there's been a lot of uh, bringing together of, of companies over the last few years, and and one of those companies uh, was called Mandiant, and they're primarily a services company. So like when you have a major breach and you need stuff remediated, Mandiant's the company you go talk to. Well, Mandiant is part of FireEye now so that we get that synergy there of the, the products that we sell as well as the, the services. Um, Mandiant also brought in this, this cloud services focused thing with originally with TAP, uh, which has evolved into Helix, which is our core platform. Uh, and in addition to these products and services, we also offer uh, intelligent services. So one of the, we've, we've acquired a number of companies over the year, and one of them was iSight Partners. And iSight was primarily doing uh, intelligence. So they are responsible for uh, gathering intelligence, synthesizing it, and uh, into it, synthesizing it into reports that you know our customers can understand and selling those reports to our customers. So we kind of have the full life cycle of, of hey, we've detected something. Um, here's what we know about it. Here's how to fix it. So every time we see a breach, that information feeds back into our into the loop and, and makes it less likely that a similar breach will happen again at, at other customers. Okay, so so give me a feel of how big uh, FireEye is in general and then how big your team is within FireEye. So FireEye in general is... I don't know the exact number. I think we're several hundred, if not over a thousand, um, spread throughout the world. We Our headquarters is in Milpitas, California. Uh, we have another big office in Reston, Virginia, a uh, smaller one in, in Dallas, Texas, and then a bunch of other places around the world. We've got one in Amsterdam. We've got a couple of offices in India. I'm pretty sure we have one, one in Germany, UK. So we're, we're a very diverse and spread out group. Uh, my team, however, uh, I'm in the customer success organization, and our team is four people, including me. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, so when you know Kevin and I were talking about, we like to you know do a show on serverless, and you you popped up as your team has had a lot of success with using serverless architecture to really scale and get a lot done in your small team. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so, so tell me about what is what sort of architecture. Well, first of all, is this is this new development? Is this uh, migrating over? What what sort of uh, development is this? Yeah, so this this was a greenfield development. Uh, the idea for the FireEye market started from this acknowledgement that we have all of these great tools already out there, but they're in several different places. Uh, they're in our support forums. They're on GitHub. They're in third party. Uh, app stores as well, like, for example, the, um, the iOS app store, uh, the Splunk app store. And what we want to do is provide a single place where our customers and prospects can go to and see the breadth of all the different things that we offer and how we can best uh, help you your security challenges and security needs. Okay, cool. So what, uh, what specifically, like, what sort of do you have, you know, like, are these large uh, processes that are running on schedules? Do you have a lot of, you know, small things that are all kind of hooked together or using timers or webhooks? Like, how do you orchestrate things? Yeah, so we have we have a, a smattering of different things. So a, primarily, we are a single page web application with an API behind it. That API, the main API is GraphQL, and it's running Apollo server within a Lambda function. Um, so we've got a lot of resolvers in there handling uh, requests for different bits of data to service primarily the web application. But, you know, anybody with an account could go and use this API uh, to query apps and things like that. Um, we To kind of speed things up with the market, we started with a, um, a platform, an external provider uh, that manages all of our content for the, the apps themselves. And um, what we do is, is it, it actually fires off webhooks when new versions of an application are published. And what we do, we have uh, API endpoints that can ingest those webhooks and kick off background processes. Uh, one of the things we like to do is actually cache the, the application binaries on our end instead of relying solely on, um, solely on this external provider. It gives us a little bit more resilience. So um, whenever a, an app is updated, We'll receive the webhook, we'll process it, we'll download the file, we'll store it locally. Um, we'll also kick off like a notification to anybody who is expressed interest. It's, in, it's an in-app notification. Um, you know, if you would like to uh, get notified when the, when the app is updated, when the app is updated, we'll, we'll see that and we'll send out and uh, call our notification service and that will push out an app to, uh, an update to your the app if you've got it running. So, what was it that let you guys to uh, to start with um, with serverless technology when you were kicking off this project? Um, I, I think the biggest driver for us was the fact that we were a tiny team. Uh, there's four of us in total. We don't have uh, dedicated operations support. We don't have dedicated uh, UX support. Like it, we have the four of us have to be responsible for everything. So, recognizing that, we wanted to maximize the time that we spent delivering business value. And there's certainly value in, you know, patch monitoring and patching and, and updating servers, but that's not, you know, that's not business value that we would be generating for the company. That's, that's, that's overhead. Uh, and we decided that we have this existing relationship with AWS. We're, we're a very large customer of theirs. Um, so we can, we could take advantage of some of the, the volume pricing in there as well um, and let AWS handle the majority of managing and monitoring the services that we use, and we just build on top of those. Which is not to say that we don't do our own monitoring, because we do, 
Uh, we feed it. We actually feed it into Datadog. Uh, we can set up alerts and things there. Um, but it's really handy to not have to worry about um, scaling up application servers or making sure they're on the or patched on the latest version. Like the number of dependencies that are not application specific that we have to remember and and keep in our heads is drastically reduced with these serverless technologies. So is this something that you had to like sell to justify to people? Was there like resistance, um, you know, from other people in the company or were you guys just sort of given free hand to do what you want to do? So uh, in in general, we were given free hand to do it. Um, There's certainly some resistance to, you know, using cloud technologies within the company. I mean, our legacy, our heritage is, uh, you know, selling boxes into data centers. And there's a lot, there's a lot of um, knowledge, institutional knowledge within the company that's biased toward that. But there's also a lot of really forward thinking folks as well who realize that cloud is, you know, the way forward here. Uh, the biggest pushback we actually got was unsurprisingly from finance. Um, but before I started this role at FireEye, I was in the, the architecture group uh, within the services and intelligence and I spent a lot of time in there uh, designing systems, trying to understand you know, what the costs are associated with it and trying to minimize all those costs. Um, so with that, that background there, I was able to put together a, a proposed architecture and take it to finance and say, here's what we're thinking of building. And here is what, it's, you know, what we think it's going to cost us, which by the way, was on the order of you know, a Starbucks coffee a day. Um, can you can we please have the keys to an AWS account? Um, and they were delighted to see this, uh, especially the you know cup of coffee a day to make it run part of it. And they said, sure, here you go, here's your AWS account, and we were off to the races. And, and have those estimates of the Starbucks coffee a day proven to be accurate? <laughs> uh, initially, yeah. So as as we as we learn more in the application and, and learn how. Um, how we'd have to interact with external services and more importantly, kind of develop some resiliency around failures in those external services. Uh, We built some additional safeguards into the system, um, some additional caching that did increase our our spend for a little bit. Um, But as as AWS is prone to do every year at uh, their annual reInvent conference, they announce a new service or announce changes to existing services. And, and actually one of the most exciting ones for us was their um, DynamoDB on-demand capacity, uh, which meant you, you no longer had to explicitly specify you know, how much capacity you needed and, and how you wanted to ramp it up. Um, so you wouldn't need to pre-specify, you know, pre-over plan, over, uh, over provision in order to handle spikes. You could just use it, and this that alone dropped our bill by you know fifty, sixty dollars a month. So I'm not sure I completely followed when you were talking about Apollo GraphQL before. Mm-hmm. Um, so is the idea that it's kind of like sort of a it's a GraphQL um, mapping on top of a lot of different services, uh, almost kind of I don't know like a Java Spring Boot kind of thing, except kind of lightweight for for serverless, or or what what exactly is Apollo doing for you? Okay, so a- Apollo is actually providing us the GraphQL, so um, it knows how to interpret incoming requests and it knows how to dispatch uh, the dispatch to the field to the resolvers for each of the fields that are in the incoming request, and then it's up to you, the application developer, to write those individual you know define your schema. 
uh, write the individual resolvers uh, and build build the functionality around it. Now we went we went this route because at the time uh, AWS uh, AWS's AppSync wasn't I don't think it was even released when we first started, or if it was, it was very early on and didn't do some of the things we needed to do. AppSync is is AWS's managed GraphQL service. Um, they're we're actually in touch with the, the team fairly regularly, and they're in the process. They're very good about taking feedback. They're in the process of building out some of the things that we need to completely off of our own our custom, you know, API gateway and Lambda implementation and move it directly to AppSync. Okay, so you guys decided to do this serverless thing. What what, what did the learning curve look like for the team? So the the learning curve wasn't terrible. Like we, we all of our uh, lambdas are written in Node, uh, and we had a couple of very strong Node developers on the team. So that aspect of it was was no big deal for us. Uh, where it became interesting and challenging was understanding exact you know the innards of Lambda enough to under to be able to optimize uh, the application and, and the execution. There's there's things there's this thing in Lambda called cold start. And basically what it is, is when it's the first time your function, an instance of your function is ever is ever invoked. Um, and this can be, you know, depending on the language, it can be painful. It could be painfully slow. Uh, in Java, it's, I've heard, you know, 10 seconds for a cold start. You know, whereas if you work in something like Node or Python, you're, you're talking like maybe a second for cold starts. Um, cold starts don't happen all that often, especially if you, you know, if you have a moderately active application. But one of the things that we learned uh, and and the, the service team, you know, clued us in on this too. It's like if you have expensive an issue, for example, establishing database connections or uh, reading configuration from, you know, your secrets manager, um, do that during the, the, you know, do that in a way that it happens only at cold start. And then that way each subsequent invocation of the same instance of this function won't have to do that. And it's oftentimes a lot faster. So for example, you know, if you're looking at pulling data out of Secrets Manager, uh, that could add a couple hundred milliseconds of late request. And if you only, you know, if you only have to do that at cold start, that trims off a couple hundred seconds of latency from responding to your, your request. Okay. Now, did you guys build on any sort of like serverless frameworks? Like I think there's, you know, serverless.com serverless framework, or were you sort of building on more raw um, you know, AWS construct. Uh, so we use the serverless framework. Um, this was a, this was, uh, AWS has their own called serverless application. I forget exactly what the M stands for, but it's SAM. But serverless was was much more feature rich at the time. So it really helped us uh, take care a lot of of the lot of uh, tedious setting up infrastructure. You know, building cloud formation templates. It does that all for us behind the scenes. But it also gives us an escape hatch to spin up our own resources that aren't direct. You know, directly. Uh, supported by the serverless framework, so it, everything's cloud formation uh, under the hood. So you can add your own things like uh, uh, DynamoDB table, SQSQ, uh, SNS topics, things like that. So that was really helpful uh, in getting us up and going very quickly. Uh, I will say though that if I were building a brand new application today on AWS Serverless, I would seriously look at uh, their Amplify product. Uh, it's very slick. Uh, and handles a lot handles a lot more than this, you know, than even we uh, than serverless does for us. Plus, they have like built-in CI and CD pipelines, and you know, uh, integrated testing with uh, uh, mobile devices and different browsers. All that within the AWS console. So it's really slick. So you're talking about there's a lot of different kind of moving parts. There's a lot of different functions and a lot of different AWS products or um, services you're hooking into. 
How do you handle like failures? What happens if a service goes down or is offline? You know, including like what if one of your what if there's you know an error in your code or something wrong in a message, or if like an entire service goes offline? What what's your kind of you know uh, how do you handle those things? So it, it all depends on the service, right? So for for synchronous invocations, like responding to HTTP requests through API Gateway, like you'll know pretty quickly if you know your your Lambda function. Um, we also you know we do the traditional you know dev you know dev environment staging production promotion process. So we do have some testing involved you know in that promotion process. Things get much more interesting when you start looking at asynchronous invocations. So um, I mentioned before we respond to the webhook events from one of our providers. Um, that that actually ends up being an, an asynchronous invocation in that we, we receive it synchronously, but then we start we process it asynchronously. So that the um, so we're not tying up API gateway and we're not tying up the third party service. Um, everything we do logs to CloudWatch, which is AWS's centralized logging system. Um, further to that, we actually have we use uh, Datadog. And we ship logs from uh, CloudWatch into Datadog, and we can uh, monitoring and alerting that way. Um, AWS has a bunch of native stuff as well. Uh, it's it, it it's been getting better. Um, this, I still personally prefer using Datadog for stuff like that. There's others as well, like Thundra. Um, so that gives us kind of this visibility across all the different things or uh, all the different services, synchronous and asynchronous that we're running. Um, one of the really helpful things, actually, that AWS does uh, as as part of um, their traversing through their services is, is on the entry point they set this this correlation ID, um, and this gets passed along to all of the different services that you happen to call with a you know with their SDK. So that way you can look at the uh, an individual request going through the system and trace it through and see where it failed. And then what do you do in the case where there's just like a large scale outage? Are you just kind of down or are you able to kind of queue things up? You know, like monitoring is good, but if there's a big, like something you depend on, then you're kind of. Right. So uh, most of the, most of the stuff that we have that we depend on externally, we either have already or are in the process of pulling that data in asynchronously so we can work with it directly uh, within AWS um, but yeah, if AWS goes down, I mean, well, half, <laughs> half the internet's going to be down anyway, um, including our monitoring because Datadog runs on AWS. Uh, right. But that's going to be the least of my concerns. It's probably going to be my family, you know, concerns for my family at that point if, if AWS has a whole region down. <laughs> like, oh boy, California just fell into the ocean. Hmm. Right, right, exactly. Time to shift everything to US East 1. <laughs> How do you scale things in terms of, you said, you, you mentioned you have a team of four. Mm-hmm. Do you have focus, like do people focus on specific things or is everyone just kind of hops in and out of all that could be? Um, so we generally have, we had two folks who were doing primarily what you would call backend, but that's everything from the API back. So the Lambda functions, SQS, uh, DynamoDB, things like that. Um, I'm kind of, I kind of hover in the middle. Like I know enough to be dangerous uh, <laughs> in the in the lambda side of things. Uh, I'm learning more and more as we go. Uh, really enjoying it too. But I also hop onto the front side of things. Uh, we built, like I said, we we have an SPA. It's it's built in React, and then we have one guy who's dedicated completely React. Really want much to do with the backend stuff. So 
just general service serverless question. I mean, some people um, are concerned about uh, you know sort of vendor lock-in since these serverless services are you know tied pretty deeply to one mm -hmm. particular vendor's infrastructure. I've seen you tweet that you don't care about that, but I'd like to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I. Here's the thing, like if you are that concerned about vendor lock-in, then you're going to start building things that are so far abstracted from the services and benefits provided by the platform that you're building to the lowest common, common, ah, lowest common denominator. So you're not going to realize any of the benefits. You might as well just run your own data center. Um, but then you also have the to worry about, oh, now I've got to staff up that data center. Uh, as, you know, as far as multi-cloud goes, like, like I said, Forget that. Pick a cloud vendor. Doesn't matter if it, I prefer AWS. People like Azure. Um, you know, there's some others out there as well. But pick one. Learn it well. Learn the ins and outs of it, and you know, don't worry about vendor lockout. All right, fair enough. So one of the side effects of a microservice architecture is that you know the individual services are simpler, but the whole system is more complex mm -hmm. to kind of reason about. Um, is that something that you guys, you know, is there anything you do to kind of mitigate that or to help manage that complexity? Um, so we actually just started um, building a new feature using step function, which is AWS's like managed state machines. And it actually has this really neat graphical representation of your state machine. Uh, and as it goes through and executes, see what it is and you know what, what state it's currently in and whether it succeeded or failed and what branch it took. So in, in that regard, it kind of gives us the tool to visually at least represent this constellation of microservices because these step functions often have, you know, a dozen or more steps within them. So that that's I found that to be really helpful in kind of visualizing how, how things interact with each other and, and where it needs to go. Uh, when you start talking about external services I was, or, you know, other services like DynamoDB, like SQS, like SNS, I don't really have a good story for, for visualizing it other than periodically sitting down in front of, uh, in front of a, a graphic tool like draw.io and making sure that I understand the flow through the application and up, updating a diagram. Um, you know, doing that little bit of planning up front was super helpful, but also going back periodically and revisiting it and make sure that, you know, making sure that that represents what you still have out there is very valuable as well. Uh, I do know there are some tools that claim to um, manage or you know go and map out your environment, uh, but I'm kind of I'm kind of skittish about giving external services enough access to my AWS account to be able to do that stuff. Okay, I can understand that. From a developer pers experience perspective, um, you know these services run in the cloud. Like, what is the local versus cloud kind of development experience that you guys or flow that you guys use? Yeah, so what we ended up doing is building several Docker containers that isolate some of these services. You know, AWS has actually built a DynamoDB local version, so you can download it and run it uh, locally on your machine. There's also a couple of other different, a uh, couple of other folks out there that have built, you know, facsimiles of these uh, external services. Like somebody's built a SQSQ step functions externally. I'm... I'm kind of torn. Like on one hand, I definitely get the value and the speed of of the local development, right? Because you know, even if you have a high speed connection, it's you still have to wait to deploy, you know, deploy these new resources, a uh, new version of your code out to AWS. On the other hand, it's nothing beats running the actual service, 
And because all of these other emulators are emulators written not by AWS, you're accepting a certain amount of risk that they're going to behave differently locally than the actual service will do. Now, in practice, that hasn't really been much of a problem, but it's certainly something to keep in mind as you do that, uh, as, you, as you start developing serverless stuff. Uh, what about from a like you know unit testing, integration testing kind of perspective? Like, what are your guys' strategies with that? Uh, so, for uh, Lambda functions are all unit tested. What we actually try to do, and, and you know, kind of going back to the vendor lock-in question, we try as much as possible to treat the Lambda functions themselves as a wrapper around actual business logic. And what we do is we um, we test that business logic independently unit tests. And then we test it kind of integrated into the Lambda, like when the Lambda sends this in, does it still behave? as? Does it send the right input to our, our, our business logic? Integration testing, we don't really have a good story for. Because, you know, like I mentioned, there's, that's not something you can really emulate locally. And you've really got to deploy that to an AWS environment and, and, and test it there. How you go about testing that, you know, that's that's up to the you know individual teams, uh, teams that have you know dedicated testers, or you know they would know best how to to handle their different situations. How does the um, source control story work for this? Is it is there kind of like a git push deploy, or, or you know, or, or how do you version stuff? Uh, so at FireEye, we actually we have uh, GitHub internally, and it's firewalled off from everything. But we do have the ability to when we uh, commit to master. We send out a webhook to a service called, uh, I believe it's CodeBuild. There's so many AWS services. Um, and what it does is it, it's actually able to go back over a VPN connection, download the code from GitHub, and then kick off our, our automated build process. So we have that, have this build, test, and deploy completely automated within CodeBuild. Um, and that way we don't have to share any AWS credentials with internal services. That's the most secure way to do it for us. Okay, so you joked about that there's just so many AWS services. And I've seen, you know, I've seen like on Hacker News, occasionally people will post like, here's a mapping of like, here's all the, you know, the AWS kind of cute names that are not self-explanatory. And here's what it actually means, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, how do you keep track? I mean, I I know, like, I live in the Microsoft world and all these, a lot of the names aren't completely obvious, but they're more kind of like, a little bit more intuitive. I, how do you keep up with them all? <laughs> um, well, fortunately, I don't have to keep up with them all because um, a lot of them aren't serverless. Um, mm. You know, you know, Lambda has this currently has this uh, limitation on it where if you want it to connect to a VPC, you know, your virtual private cloud, um, there's actually a really stiff startup penalty on it to the point where it's you know unusable. For synchronous, you know, user facing type of things. So that kind of, for now, that kind of helps narrow it down for us, the, you know, picking the services that, that we use. Primarily, like I said, we use CloudFront to sit in front of everything. We use WAF, which is Web Application Firewall, to, you know, do some of the security checks, you know, on incoming requests, guard against SQL injection and, and things like that. We use API Gateway. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, Lambdas is, you know, the grand, you know, the granddaddy of all the, the function as a service type of things, and then beyond that, we use DynamoDB. Uh, it's a database. You have to know. A little, you, know you have to read a bit more about why, what makes it so special. 
to really understand what you know the Dynamo part of it. But for all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a document database. SNS Simple Notification Service is for um, like PubSub type of of uh, messaging. Uh, SQS Simple Queue Service. I mean, it's pretty pretty straightforward there. I, I think the most cryptic one we use. So we, we use directly Secrets Manager, but there's also Systems Manager Parameters. Uh, I don't even know. It's it's such a it's such a long and obtuse name, but basically for securely storing configuration data. I don't know if you guys know Corey Quinn, but he's a um, commentator on on cloud technologies, and he is constantly railing on the on AWS for uh, you know service names like that. Yeah, we don't we don't use a whole lot of different services the it's a pretty you know even with the serverless push from aws right now the the constellation of services that are core to creating a serverless application in my mind are you know it's pretty small some argue that the container service falls into the serverless category i don't happen to be one of uh i know people will disagree (laughs) one of my colleagues actually vehemently disagrees but I, I, I'll, I'll fully admit to my bias against containers. Uh, I don't like them. <laughs> well, why? Why is that? <laughs> they're they're painful to me. Like there's there's having done the serverless stuff for the last you know year and a half or so. Even with a container, I still essentially have to worry about operating systems, right? Because you know there's still security updates that need to be applied to your container. There's still you know there's still patching and monitoring and things like that. I, I'm not, I personally am not interested in doing that. To me, that that gets in the way of me providing business value quickly. Right, right. And and going from the like scale of you, you're responsible for the whole OS and containers gets you part of the way there. But if you can move to serverless where you're writing a little four or five micro function that just does one little thing, you can really focus down then. Exactly. I mean, we are we already have this constellation of dependencies to worry about with Node projects. Anyway, <laughs> I, I don't want right. to also have to worry about the operating system itself. So, as you were going into this and architecting things, did you kind of, you know, whiteboard everything and kind of figure it all out first and kind of decide on your services, or was it kind of more organic, like you just start start going and see where things take you and kind of learn along the way what works and doesn't? Uh, so, we, I mean, we started out, yeah, I started out with a whiteboard with a um, actually a drawing within, you know, draw.io, which is a, a great visual graphing architecture. That's free. Can you say that again? What is that? It's draw.io. Okay. Yeah, it runs complete within the browser. Um, it also can run offline. And there's also a Confluence plugin. So if you use Confluence at work, integrate those graphs right into Confluence itself. And that, that's actually where I started with this. Um, you know, I knew we needed, you know, a web service with an API. I knew we needed to serve static content. You know, we had some fuzzy ideas about orchestrating with some other some other services and APIs that that, that FireEye provides. Those haven't been a priority yet. Uh, so, you know, we I didn't spend a whole lot of time drawing out this diagram, like maybe a couple hours, uh, you know, just drawing it out and thinking about it. Uh, but then as, as you know, we had more requirements come in for the application or people wanted to integrate it, you know, integrate it with it in certain ways, or we learned, you know, how these external services, not AWS services, but services external to us. I mentioned we we have a uh, an external provider for our market platform that, that does the content management. You know, as we learned how these things behave, then we've had to adjust the architecture to, you know, guard, you know, guard ourselves against external failures and, and make 
the focus has been on making the app, our application as resilient as it can be, recognizing that we can't completely get rid of these dependencies, but we want to make sure that outages on these dependencies have the minimal impact to our customers. So uh, you mentioned DynamoDB. Um, I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about it. And like, you know, for somebody who comes from the sort of relational database kind of background of Postgres or whatever, like what, you know, what's different about it? What's unique about it? How do you think about using it? Uh, what's different about it is everything. <laughs> um, it's, it, I've been working with it for about a year and a half now, but the, the fundamental shift in my understanding about how best to work with it didn't happen until the last, you know, month or so. Um, when I finally got around to watching this video from from reInvent, the last uh, the last conference at reInvent, it was it was about design patterns within DynamoD and kind of understanding. You know, the the, the presenter went through and talked about all the different types of uh, models you would use in a relational store, and he talked about how you would model those things differently within DynamoDB, which was really cool and really fascinating. But I think one of the points that kind of hammered home there was you really need to, to think about the access patterns, like how you're going to access your data up front, um, because that will have implications on how you, uh, you know, how you design the scheme. I mean, it's schemaless kind of, um, but there's, there's limitations within DynamoDB that you, know, you don't have with SQL databases, but there's things that you get for free that make it really awesome. Um, but you need to, you need to think about these access patterns ahead of time and kind of design and, and, understand how the application is going to work and then you can design the table layout or not even a table layout <laughs> i should expand on that i'll come back to that um, but design how you use DynamoD. Uh, whereas you know coming from rails background years ago like i'll just might you know i'll just create a new migration to change my schema no big deal you don't really you have to do a bit more upfront thought and planning with with DynamoDB. Any specific examples you could give about a, you know a particular use case that was you found instructive? Yeah, so th there's there's this one that I, I'm actually in the process of of building in our own application where it's it's versioning content and giving you kind of like an audit trail. Um, with DynamoDB, you get uh, a primary key and a hash key. I'm sorry, a hash key and a range key. And under the covers, what happens is the, the hash key decides what bucket something goes in, think of a hash bucket. And then the, the range key, also called the sort key, determines how it's sorted in the result set. So you can you can do some interesting things because these, these keys can be numbers or they can be strings. So what we actually end up doing, uh, the, the other, sorry, the other cool thing about it is beyond those two attributes, you can have whatever whatever other attributes you want at a row level. So they can be different for individual entities. Different different rows within the application have, di have different columns in them. Uh, so you can store different types of things all within the same table. So back to the, the versioning story here, what we've got is we've, you know, we want to have versions of our content that we put out there. So we would, you know, when we stage a new version, we have it be, you know, we increment the number on it, but we always have a a row in in the table that has you know v0 and a pointer to what the actual current version is so it's non-destructive versioning gives you this audit trail you can store additional attributes in in that you know in each individual documents row about who changed it last when they changed it things like that that aren't necessarily important to this display show me the current version but what this gets you is also the ability to say, okay, I want to make, you know, right now version six is the current version. So in order to make version seven the current version, 
I take I take the the data from from that version seven row, put it into the v zero row, and just change the pointer for current to say, by the way, current is now v seven, and all of this is blazingly fast. Um, and I don't have to update twelve tables. I can have a very rich, deeply nested structure within one of those attributes that represents you know a document. So as you're talking about versioning, do you run into things where you need to update multiple services at once or, you know, update, you know, at the, at the data level and services as well. And if so, how do you handle rolling that all out, you know, handling multiple updates at once? Yeah. So actually I would use something like step functions to, to orchestrate all that. You know, it gives you that state machine and it gives you, you know, it'll, if that state succeeds and it'll proceed to the next step, if it fails, you can actually catch specific failures and then have a specific compensating action to roll things back. So for example, we're taking documents that have attachments in them, logo images, uh, PDFs, things like that. We, don't, we can't store those all in DynamoDB. There's a, a 400 kilobyte per row um, limitation on it. And we, we, you wouldn't want to store them in there anyway. It's not the optimal storage. You put that in S3. So what we do is we, you know, we would take, a, we'd take this document, store it in DynamoDB, we go to the next step, and the next step is responsible for going out and fetching all of these, these images and documents, storing them in S3. Well, there's a lot that can happen when you're talking to external services. You know, go fetch, you know, maybe the image disappeared, then it fails. So that particular step would fail. It fails in a certain way. We can detect that and we can say, oh, something's wrong. We know we, know we can't fix it. We need to roll back that, that record we just put into Dynamo to do that and leave ourselves in a pristine state and say, hey, by the way, this failed. Here was the failure. You need to go do something about it before you try this again. And there's, a, and there's other services that have that built in as well. Like Lambda, when you invoke a Lambda function asynchronously, it will automatically retry, I believe it's three times uh, with exponential back off. And if after the third time it fails, it doesn't try to do it again, but it puts a message into an SQS queue that you've specified but you can check periodically and say, oh, hey, I've had some failures. I need to go check. Maybe I had a bad deploy. Maybe I need to you know, update some data somewhere. But there, there are ways to get notified that things failed and be able to take compensating actions to get the state, the system back into a, a, a reasonable state. Okay, cool. So as you look back at this, like for somebody listening, maybe they're interested in, in you know, starting to develop serverless on AWS, what would you recommend to somebody getting started? Like, how do you get started, and what are some major like lessons learned in the process? Yeah, if if I were getting started today, I would I would first take a look at AWS's Amplify. It's a front end JavaScript library. It is a you know iOS and an Android you know library as well, but it also is a command line application which helps you interact with these AWS services and helps you set things up automatically. It's like, I need an API, I need a database, I need user management, I need monitoring and engagement, you know, monitoring and engagement service. I need a way to communicate with my server, you know, with my users. Amplify will help set that all up for you, not just set it up, but also set up a CI CD pipeline, uh, some automated testing within, you know, different uh, browsers and and mobile devices, because yes, there are services for those in AWS. That would be my number one recommendation for somebody who wanted to get started with serverless on AWS is, is 
check out Amplify. That team is doing some really cool stuff. Are there some kind of like um, uh, projects or, or things that are kind of like, here's an example where there's already kind of a success, you know, like a blueprint or a template where you can get started with to kind of learn from? Yeah, so the the serverless framework itself has this, this thing called components. And it is like a collection of different services that work well together to provide, for example, static site hosting, or I'm sure there's a couple other examples. I haven't looked at them directly. The serverless framework itself is is very popular. So there's tons of examples on GitHub of people doing different things. You know, for example, creating a DynamoDB database that has a Lambda that's, that reads on the stream and takes new documents and puts them into Elasticsearch for you. That stuff is out there. It's five, 10 minutes worth of Google. And is it something that, you know, you guys started Greenfield, which is obviously a, a big advantage, but when if somebody has an existing legacy application, is it something that, you know, they can sort of try snapping in piecemeal, you know, serverless pieces as they go? Or is it is that challenging? Uh, it's challenging, but you can certainly try it. Like the, the approach that I would recommend for something like that is, first of all, get something you know, at the very least, get CloudFront in front of your application because CloudFront's not just a content distribution network. It's also uh, like our application router, kind of like Nginx. You can say anything that's on this path goes to this origin. Anything that's on the images path goes to S3. Um, so that gives you the, the capability to say, this part of my application, I want to go to, you know, to my existing, say, Rails application. But I want to start shifting pieces over, you know, start shifting different routes over to a serverless approach. You can do that on a on a path by path basis. And I've, I've I've heard of companies that have actually taken this approach and gone piecemeal from a, a large monolithic you know, Rails application to microservices using Lambda. Interesting. Okay, one more question. I know last time we talked to you, which was roughly 250 years ago. Uh, <laughs> you were a Rails guy, Ruby guy, big Ruby guy. And so now you have gone into the JavaScript world. How have you found that transition? Um, so they're, they're both not, they're both dynamically typed languages. So it wasn't a huge shift. Um, I think the biggest shift for me is the, the async and, and promises stuff, which at first it, it took me a little while to, to get my head around it. But now that I understand it better, understand the mechanics of it, I really like it. I'm just as comfortable now developing in, in Node as I as I was developing in Ruby, and I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. I'm out of questions. Kevin, you? Yeah, me too. This has been great, Will. Thanks. Awesome. Will, is there anything else that, that you wanted to cover that we haven't asked about? Uh, I will say that my team is actually hiring right now. Um, uh, John, I'll provide you the uh, link to one of those openings uh, after this. Uh, but we're hiring. We've got a, we've got a couple openings. Come work with me. Come work on serverless stuff. Come work on React. Uh, my team is entirely remote, so it doesn't matter where you are in the U.S. We prefer the U.S. Uh, simply because it the, it reduces the, the time zone strains. But yeah, come work with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll get the link and put that in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been great, Will. Yeah, it's been uh, nine years since we talked to you before, so we'll try and get you back on in another nine years or so. And uh, just <laughs> check back in. We'll make this, I'll send a recurring meeting every nine years. We'll get this. Uh... Excellent. I'll look for it. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, thanks for teaching us all about the serverless and the AWS stuff. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon on Herding Code.